I thought you had a really, really cool background, by the way. And I, I, when I saw that, I'm like, you're going to be a great guy to, to check in with. So I was actually just curious about, you know, your trek from Harvard, you know, all the way to where, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, Harvard and all the really interesting research that you've been doing since then, like, how did you end up getting on the track around the psychology of things? Like you started doing work then about ego development. I, how did you, how did you ever get started? Like what, what got you on that track? Um, so I think there, there must've been some crucial formative experience as a child because, (laughs) Uh, I was always interested in meditation, even as like uh, 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 a young child. And I got into martial arts when I was a kid too. And a big portion of martial arts is uh, the mental side of training. So your your focus determines your success. And that probably turned me on to the idea that uh, this thing in between our ears is pretty powerful and has a lot of potential. So even through high school, I started to, to think about meditation a lot and started to, to study some different practices. And in my undergraduate degree, uh, I studied cognitive science, which is like this nice combination of psychology, philosophy, computer science, linguistics, uh, anthropology. And it's, it's at its core, it's the study of how systems work. So mm-hmm. the system of a culture or the system of a machine or the system of a individual. Um, and afterwards, or actually while I was at UConn, I started working for this company called the National Institute for the Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine, which is kind of a mouthful. Uh, but what they do is they interview meditation experts, they interview uh, clinical psychologists, they interview different researchers to understand different trends in well-being and how we can translate those to, to clinical interventions. So I got some exposure to some research uh, while I was there. And then after UConn, I moved to Boston and started to work in a few different research labs. Uh, one research lab was studying the impact of yoga and meditation on the brain. So we were using fMRI scanners to understand the impact of an eight-week meditation course on the brain. And at the other one, we were studying invasive uh, brain-machine interface technology, so something called a deep brain stimulation device for people with Parkinson's disease. So I had this kind of combination of uh, brain-machine interface technology, and uh, some neuroscience research on meditation and yoga. Uh, and my next step was, was going to Harvard uh, and studying human development psychology. I got really uh, interested in leadership development. So what are the psychological changes, the ego development that people go through throughout their adulthood, and how does that relate to being an effective leader? Um, and when I graduated from Harvard, I was planning on going into leadership development and got a couple job offers in that space. And then I got this job offer from this crazy sounding startup called Branco. There was only like 15 people in the company. And I wasn't really sure about it, to be honest. Uh, but I met the, the CEO, who's an incredibly ambitious person. Uh, and I saw his vision. Uh, and so I joined them about three and a half years ago. And now we have about, we went from like 15 people. And now we're, we're close to 200 people uh, with offices in the U.S. and China. It's beautiful, and I, I really, really love what you're doing. And really, your background is just phenomenal, and they could not have. So your position at Brainco is what right now? So I'm uh, president for Brainco USA. Okay, so I don't think they could have picked a, a more perfect person with the background that you have, and it's really interesting. 
So you have several different products. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could just kind of navigate through what each of these are. Some of them have apps. Uh, there's even sort of products for students. So where where did you kind of start from? What was the, the MVP that this started this all? Right. So the MVP was a wearable device that detects your brain activity. So for people in the neuroscience space, we're using EEG technology. And we've developed a few key innovations around how we acquire that signal and how we analyze that signal. And then we can apply it in some, some unique ways. So the, the, the start of it was this EEG device. Um, but, you know, Brainco's products fall into two major categories. One is uh, smart prosthetics for amputees. And one is this wearable device and all the applications that we have for it. So these are the, the two main things that we do. Perfect. So can you actually dissect the prosthetics piece? I'm just curious. Yeah. So the, the, like I said, the MVP was the headband and we were at a conference, uh, and we had a demo of this little plastic hand that would open and close based on your focus or your relaxation. It would actuate the hand. Uh, and an amputee came over who had this smart prosthetic hand and he was asking if we could make some device for him where he could control his prosthetic with his brain. And so we started to talk with him a little bit more, and we found out that the prosthetic he had was $70,000. And so a very small percentage of amputees um, can get a prosthetic like this. So we started to tinker around with the idea of using our headband to control a prosthetic, but it's really not uh, all that reliable using EEG signal to control a prosthetic. Um, primarily what's used are EMG signals, so the, the muscle signals coming from the residual limb. So if my amputation is below my elbow, the sensors uh, lay on the part of my arm that's left. And then depending on those muscle movements, it will control the prosthetic. And we started to think about how we could lower the cost. So we've uh, constructed a mechanical design that allows us to lower the cost a lot. Uh, but really the, the key innovation is in the algorithm. Uh, we're coming out with a uh, product that will be approved by the FDA by the end of this year that gives users really precise control. So instead of using your muscles kind of like a switch to activate different gestures, uh, we have a training program where we'll ask the amputee to think about making a fist or think about pointing a finger or think about, you know, doing a, a key grip or something. Uh, and after about 30 minutes of training, our uh, deep learning algorithm has taken enough signals from the user so that they can control individual fingers just like you or I do. So the, the innovation here is really on the, the deep learning side and how we're able to apply that to provide a really low-cost prosthetic for amputees. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this uh, from the pharma and medical device um, space. Mm -hmm. Have you partnered, you know, so how, did, how does the funding work here in the development? <clears throat> who are you partnering with um, and how, when you've got, gone through the FDA, this is not, is this considered a digital therapeutic or, you know, tell us a little bit about how that all kind of worked out. Sure. So we're VC funded. Um, and for the FDA, there are some predicate devices. So there are some really great prosthetics out there already. Uh, the control mechanism, though, um, typically works more like a switch rather than an intuitive connection between the user and the prosthetic. So the way that the FDA submission works on a really high level is uh, you can point towards these predicate devices and say, hey, you know, these are already approved. Uh, this is why they're safe. They passed 
all these ISO standards, you know, testing, and we have done that too. Uh, the differentiation is on the software side, and this is how our software works. This is why our software is safe. Um, so, you know, from our understanding and the, the FDA uh, consultants that we're working with and our other advisors that we're working with, uh, we don't see a, a huge uh, hurdle in getting FDA approval. Right. Yeah. And I definitely see some people seeing this as an extension of other things that they're working on, potentially, you know, several different kinds of healthcare opportunities, I think, in that space. Yeah. And um, as it relates to like the future, artificial intelligence, the world of virtual reality, I think now, especially in, you know, post COVID-19, have you started thinking about other applications for this prosthetic hand? So... In terms of the concept of haptics and, you know, yeah. feeling things aren't really there and yeah. what can we do with this? Right. So we, we have been approached by a few different potential partners um, that are interested in uh, lifelike hands. So things like testing products um, or different types of assembly procedures or anything where, you know, a human hand might be uh, might be of value. Uh, we you, there's a potential for us to use this type of technology there. Um, or, you know, because our, our algorithm can understand the user's intention so well, you could even think of uh, like a cuff, like a bracelet that's used for someone who's not an amputee, but as an interface with different technology. So, you know, as you're doing these subtle movements that you train the, the cuff or the bracelet to understand, it's interacting with the things around you. Uh, so that would be maybe a more like... Um, general application of the technology yeah very interesting haptics yeah. some people working on that too so how can you feed back the the information that the prosthetic is getting into the user so that's uh, certainly a something that people are already exploring yeah i mean here's another thing as well too i'm sure you've been hearing a lot about people talking about their personal avatar yeah. and eventually looking at mechanisms or kind of robotic parts like this that become the extension of your your virtual avatar. Right. We're kind of getting futuristic on it, but. Uh, yeah, I, you know, my, my perspective on this uh, it has always been uh, look to the future and then, you know, rely on what's possible now because right. there's, there's a balance to be had. You want to have this big vision. It gets energy moving. It gets people moving in the right direction, but it's important to kind of be grounded in what we can do now so that we can, uh, over deliver on on what's actually possible, uh, but it's certainly you know if you look at um, the type of applications of this technology or related technology for people who are paralyzed and they have full body exoskeletons where they're mm -hmm. able to walk again, right? It's it's uh, simple or it's not simple. It's um it's not like these people are doing backflips, uh, but you can you can really clearly see the trend of where this is going to go. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of quality of life and so many other elements, kind of want to backtrack on to the MVP, which is, uh, you know, here in Toronto, as you probably have heard of the company Muse yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and everything that's going on with their headband. Um, tell us a little bit about your headband. Does it run on a different technology, a different algorithm? How is it the same? How is it different than Muse? Sure. So the first generation of our hardware is called Focus One. Uh, and some of the differentiators between how we apply this technology and how Muse applies this technology, which, by the way, is a really great company. I really love their hardware. Uh, I think they're doing awesome work. Um, 
the sensors that we're using. So we developed this material, this proprietary material that's considered or is what's called a hydrogel electrode. So we can get a really, really high quality raw EEG signal uh, from this type of sensor. So our research partners that we're working with really love using this if they want to look at the raw EEG signal. So all the data that the headband's capturing. Uh, the other differentiator is for the first generation product, we're using Wi-Fi, which allows us to collect data from a hundred users at once in a given room. So imagine you're in a lecture hall. You could have a hundred people wearing this headband and all that data streaming to one person's computer, either for a research study or to understand engagement during learning, which is some research that we've done. And then uh, the third differentiator is in the algorithm. So we've created our own machine learning algorithm to quantify different cognitive states like engagement and relaxation. And we're working on some uh, other algorithms too. Right. So this is really, really essential stuff in a myriad of different ways. And I think as many scientists like you and I and many others who are sort of demystifying the kind of the spirituality behind machines and behind science, it's a very interesting bridge yeah. And I'm just curious as to um, what has the uptake been and have, have you noticed anything pre or post COVID in terms of the adoption, awareness or um, receptivity to not only the hardware, but the apps, the software and kind of the, the so what? Yeah, definitely. So there's two main things that uh, come to mind. One is remote learning. So in a remote learning situation, if you could understand how to create a more engaging environment for the people learning by using what's happening in their mind to augment or modify what's being displayed on the screen, you can create a much more engaging uh, environment. So we've done some studies with MIT Media Lab where with a very simple type of feedback, they were able to improve test scores, improve how engaged someone's brain was and improve how engaged people felt during learning. So by using this uh, type of data, you can create more engaging learning experiences. So that would be one, you know, if, if remote learning um, continues to, this trend kind of continues, I think there's some really interesting applications there. And in fact, we're working with a really large partner on implementing something like that. The second piece I think is um, this trend that we're noticing of people becoming more and more aware of how important their uh, cognitive well-being is, right? And I think COVID-19 spiked a lot of anxiety in a lot of people, rightfully so. So we're thinking about how can we apply this technology to help people gain more control over their cognitive well-being and improve their certain wellness outcomes. And we've been studying this in a few different populations but we think that it's time to open this up to a broader population. And I think that the events over the past few weeks have made people realize how important it is to take care of ourselves. And so if we can provide them with a tool that allows them to achieve these types of outcomes, especially in a fun and engaging way, which is what we're designing right now, I think it's going to be, it's almost like a, a, a fun game you get to play, but the outcome is you're more calm, you're more relaxed, and you're more in control. And this is a really important, I mean, obviously, uh, this, you know, pandemics and future pandemics to come, you know, we're hearing a lot of 
uh, information that the, there's an increase in some of these men, some of these mental or uh, you know, undiagnosed or hidden mental health issues. You know, people are going to be um, you know retrieving this information almost like a PTSD type of thing. And so there's no better time, I think, for these kinds of technologies. Now, what is the the rigor around controlled studies? You know, FDA approvals. Is this something that can be considered an actual digital therapeutic where somebody can go into a digital pharmacy and prescribe your product and or app to have to help with PTSD, anxiety, depression? Right. So our product is not a medical device and it doesn't treat or diagnose any medical condition. Uh, it's what's considered a general wellness device is what the guidance that the FDA has, has provided. And what I would say to people in this space or who are considering this space is there's advantages to both sides of the coin. If you have FDA approval, then of course there's uh, a business model to be had with insurance providers uh, and different healthcare providers. The uh, trade-off is, uh, of course, the, the amount of studies and the investment you need to put into to do those studies and the time it takes. And on the on the flip side, if you're not targeting uh, a medical condition and you're just more of a general wellness product, then the regulations around uh, around what you can say are very clear, right? You can't claim that you're treating any medical condition, but then on the on the other side, you don't have to go through that you know multi-year-long process. So our perspective on this is we're going to stick to something that's more of a general wellness product and help people feel better, help people you know reduce their stress. And if down the road we're starting to see more and more of a specific clinical population that's gravitating towards this, then we'll consider the time and investment necessary to put that through a full FDA approval process. The direction that I'm seeing is that will certainly happen. Over the next five to 10 years, I think these technologies will start to shift into more of a, a medical application uh, and we're seeing that we've already seen that with things like uh, TDCS and TMS, so transcranial magnetic stimulation being approved to treat things like depression. Um, and I can see this type of technology also moving in that direction. But from a entrepreneurial point of view, there's advantages to to both sides. Right, absolutely. And there's pros and cons, and there's timing and specifics, and it, and it all costs money. So talking about that, <clears throat> as we know, there's obviously been traditional players in the healthcare space big pharma, small pharma, biotech, medical device companies, as they're sort of looking at their business models, and there's kind of a lot of evolution in what's going on. Um, and I think this recent pandemic is getting a lot of people to do some real inner reflection. Mm -hmm. um, is how would pharma look at companies like yourselves or as partners like yourselves, or what's possible for changing the beyond the pill thinking getting into devices and providing therapeutics that are of completely different caliber. What would, what would you say to them? Yeah. So there's a couple components. One component is on the assessment side. So can these technologies be used to assess different uh, types of neurologically based conditions? Uh, can we use this technology to assess stress? Maybe even putting treatment on the side for, for a second just to assess these mental conditions. And is that of value to those types of companies? And then on the treatment side, uh, what I think and what I've seen is that there are pharmaceutical companies um, that are starting to 
uh, enter this space either. The ones that I've actually seen are uh, by investing in companies like ours. So, you know, if I was running a pharmaceutical company and I, my business is good and I see this potential emerging technology, right, it would make sense to explore it, do my due diligence, try to validate it, and then either do something on my own or invest in those types of companies. So I, I think uh, the smart play is collaboration and partnerships. And I imagine we'll start seeing more and more of those as the clinical data comes out. You know, if you're thinking about working with a pharmaceutical company, uh, then of course it makes sense that you're going to be taking more of the FDA route and needing a high level of clinical significance um, to partner with those types of companies. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> this actually brings up some really interesting questions because as we start talking about making these things more visible, have larger play and utility, there's a there's a data piece to this. Let's be honest, the data is the new oil. It's the new fuel of our economy. And um, we're running into a lot of old infrastructure mm. and legacy regulations and then a whole other bioethics concern around privacy and what is ownership of data. Right. What are some of the things that you're doing in on on the on these topics uh i am so impressed with how our team has taken a stance on uh, data privacy and security and data ethics so we work with a number of outside organizations and have an internal data privacy and security team that's really taking a look at how do we be best in class at this and there's uh, some really obvious reasons which are of course uh, it's our duty to protect people's data. And then the other thing that's that's interesting uh, that I've seen some other people talk about, which um, I tend to agree with, is there's a level of optics on data privacy and security. So if I dig into that just a little bit, what I mean is when people see a headband like ours, they immediately go, oh, my God, that's going to read my mind. You know, that can read my thoughts, which isn't true. Uh, you know, you can't use this technology that we have right now to diagnose anything, to identify emotions, to even identify who you are. Right? I could look at all of your EEG data in the world and have no idea who you were just based on that. Uh, in some ways, you know, your birth date and email are more sensitive uh, than some of the biometric data that people are collecting. But the feeling is that it's really personal, which makes 100% sense because you're wearing this technology. So another layer of this is how do we make sure people feel comfortable with trying something new, right? It's a new technology. So making the environment feel as safe as possible with really being um, a leader in terms of data privacy and security is, is our take on this. Uh, so while the data might not be more sensitive than your social security number, the same level of, or, uh, you know, the, the same level of best practices apply to kind of whatever data you're collecting, especially as we see new regulations like GDPR and CCPA uh, and staying on top of those so that our users and our partners know that we take this seriously so that they can feel comfortable trying something new. Yeah, no, <clears throat> all very good points. Um, so just getting a little bit philosophical here then, um, you know, as, as we sort of linger on that topic of wearing the technology at some point, we're talking about embedding the technology. And so we obviously know companies like Elon Musk's Neuralink and, you know, other sorts of bio layers and the idea of extending and expanding human consciousness or really, if you will, the collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, is there a, a personal stance on that, a philosophy, or do you just try to stay away from topics like that and, and leave that to the philosophers? Um, I'll say this. It's going to be easier to get people to use a wearable than an implantable, probably. Um, it may be the case that in the coming years, the trend moves more towards implantables. I don't know. Um, I would never underestimate, you know, people like Elon Musk, of course, in, in, in what they're doing. And for given populations, like the research I used to be doing, implantables make sense. So for people with Parkinson's for years, we've used deep brain stimulation devices, which are implanted into the brain, and then a battery pack is buried underneath your skin, and it provides stimulation to your brain to reduce your symptoms. So this technology exists, and I think for specific populations, it makes sense. That trade-off is worth it. Uh, for a general population, getting an implantable right now uh, is a pretty uh, serious decision. So it would make sense that perhaps we trend towards that direction, um, but I wouldn't place any bets on it yet because it's not super clear. What is clear is that people are willing to wear, to use wearables, you know, especially when you're using them for five, 10 minutes at a time. That's not so much a big deal. Uh, but I, I could see, you know, if we kind of glimpse into the future, it might make sense that eventually we get to that point, but I'm not sure yet. All right. No, it's all really great points. So um, we, one of the things, as you probably know, at Impetus Digital is we've built some best-in-class collaboration tools to allow pharma, medical device, or life science companies to have these courageous conversations with their customers, payers, patients. Mm. We really believe at Impetus that everything starts with a thought. Mm. And to be able to get truly creative and expansive and to progress as individuals, companies, societies, communities, we need to start a conversation. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what we're really trying to do is bridging the gap and being able to bridge the gap between, you know, innovative thinkers and sort of digital therapeutics of the future with ways of people that have already built industries today and bridging that gap and starting to have those conversations. So if people wanted to get in touch with you, where what was the best way for them to learn more about BrainCo or about any of your team specifically? Yeah, if you go to BrainCo dot tech so we're a technology company so we're bring at bring www.brainco.tech uh, and this idea just came to me in terms of what you guys are doing i imagine it would be possible to use these types of devices to measure how engaged the participants are when they're doing your types of uh your types of uh, services so you could probably you could probably prove scientifically that when people are engaging with your platform, that their brains are, you know, maybe more engaged than in normal conversations or, or something like that. So even, you know, directly with what you're doing, I think there's applications of this technology. I love it. Actually, I'm going to uh, probably take you up on that. I'm definitely going to think about that. I think it's very, very cool. Um, thank you very much um, for this. I just wanted to let you know that um, 